Welcome back to Under the Radar, a Rolling Stones podcast about deep cuts and hot cookies. Okay, um, so moving on, what's after Too Tight? Is- well, of course, it's Thief in the Night, and back to back with that, how can I stop? And, you know, it's really hard to even separate these, but uh, it was a very last-minute idea to sort of thematically put these two songs back to back in sequencing. And even um, they only got Thief in the Night on the record because they had been finishing it at Keith's home studio, and then they actually took it via speedboat to New York to get it mastered hmm. or or to get it into the mix session. There's a whole story about it. Keith says that he won't tell the whole <laughs> the whole thing, but it's in it's in his book that they were they were doing overdubs at his house or something like that, and then had to had to like smuggle it. Uh, rush it back via via boat to get it uh, onto the record, and yeah. So Thief in the Night is really interesting because it has a baritone guitar on it. Mm-hmm. Now, if when you hear that opening riff, boom, 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 you cannot voice a D that low on an electric guitar on unless, regular tuning, yeah. unless you down tune yeah. or it's a baritone. Um, so it was probably something that was played on the electric piano or something like that, and then hey, that's great, mm-hmm. but. Keith has this sort of ideological bent against new ideas. And what's funny about that on Thief in the Night is because it has reverse symbols. Clearly, some element of it is is looped. Yeah. You, those things don't happen by accident. And then there's the baritone. And you will notice that Pierre de Beauport has writing credit on yeah. it. And he's credited with playing the piano. So maybe that piano part that you're thinking about, the bum, 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 that might have been his contribution. That may have, yeah, I, I have a feeling that that's what it was and that Keith was like, that's that's the sound. That's what we're going to do. Yeah. Now, Thief in the Night is really, for me, the ultimate Keith song. Yeah, it's his version of Midnight Rambler. You know, it's like from the perspective of Keith's kind of persona, that I'm going to sneak in at night and take you is like the flip side to the you know the prancing mick version that's of the true Rambler. and if this one comes he was the story behind this one is that he and patty were fighting now that's the thing is that he and he and keith and patty were having more uh issues during the actual making of the record but mick and keith started fighting on the tour right and so apparently Patty, who is very religious, started spending more and more time with uh, her priest, mm-hmm. kind of like on The Sopranos. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And Keith got jealous. So the thief in the night, like that's that's a biblical illusion mm-hmm. that you know Christ will come like a thief in the night. And there is there's a whole other podcast that we could bore you with about the religious themes yes. on this record or the the religious themes throughout the Rolling Stones canon because yeah. I think that there is something to discuss there. There's a codex of iconography yet to be written. Yes. <laughs> um, but thief in the night is one of those things that the Stones get criticized a great deal for, and specifically this one, and indeed most music since the '80s. I've known a lot of older people who say it's all about production now and it's not about performing and talent. And Or i.e., when did computers ruin music? Yes. Can you carbon date how how late in the game you are after the computer revolution? And I'm a guy who is I'm a producer before I'm a, even a musician. You know, I'm a I'm a writer producer before I'm a musician. I'm not very technically competent. I only use technique as a way to 
um, make it easy to express myself. Because mm-hmm. if you don't have technique at all, then you can't do anything. And I am constantly getting into these fights with people who tell me that, you know, um, the kind of preamps you use and the gear you use doesn't matter and where you track your record doesn't matter because it's all about heart and emotion. And uh, in the abstract, that's true. But I don't believe that there's even a difference between production and mixing and writing. Now, where did I get this idea? From Keith. Yeah. Right? It's very, very interesting to me that so many of those dudes from the 60s and 70s who invented the process that we now... We used to call EQing, like when you close mic something and then you you round it off with EQ, you take the low end out to blend it all together. That used to be called the Tamla Motown process, and now it's just called recording. Yeah. In the same way that overdubbing was a fancy new process that then became just called recording. Yeah. I would actually argue that it's more likely that more of Bridges to Babylon is properly live than Beggar's Banquet. I would say so too, because a lot of Beggar's Banquet is built up over months and months of careful overdubbing. Yeah, and so the the distinction is that more of the band played on the live take in the 90s than would have on stuff from the 60s and 70s. Because they had better They didn't have enough inputs. They simply didn't have, you're talking about eight track tape at the most. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even Beggar's Banquet was probably four. I don't, know. Uh, I don't really remember off the top of my head, but I I feel like it, by that point they would have moved on to eight track just be, to get stuff like the choir on. You can't always get right, the, like the, that but the mixes still the mixes are still very dense, and indeed they aren't even really mixes in the way that we know because you just tracked it. Gun John's famously Don Henley when they were doing. Um, one of the Eagles records, I think it was Desperado. He's like, oh, can you turn the kick drum up a little? And Gun John said, if you want there to be more kick, you play it louder. You know, that's not how we think about recording anymore. Mm-hmm. Like the, the idea, drums, drum sounds benefited a great deal from us processing them more. Right. So the point is here is that we have the people who literally invented the music processes that we now use being condemned for using them. Yeah, it's a strange. A it, yeah. <laughs> it's a strange insight, but it's true. I mean, what Keith credits uh, his engineer or his engineer of choice on this record, Rob Fabroni, for, is capturing the feeling of a live room. But the way he does that is actually with incredibly good miking technique. It's not as though he just finds the right room, puts a mic any place, and that's the record. He actually is very careful about capturing parts of the acoustic space with really accurate and precise miking technique. So when you hear stuff like the decay on the cymbals in How Can I Stop, that's the recording technique at hand. Like that's the stuff that they were really working hard on in this record. And it shows, like it pays off. Everything sounds gorgeous and immediate and there's no veil between you and the players. You can just sort of reach out and touch them almost. Yeah, there's something there's something really, really magical about those last two songs. And like we were saying about uh, Saint of Me, Out of Control, it's again the kind of like Jumping Jack Flash, Child of the Moon dichotomy in that, in that um, Thief in the Night is kind of like, yeah, I'm cool and I'm going to go out there and, and do all this stuff and you're going to see how awesome I am. Whereas How Can I Stop is much more overtly vulnerable. It's the opposite. It's like you're messing with me, right? Not I'm going to mess with you. 
And I believe that How Can I Stop is actually, it's the same as All About You. Everybody thought All About You was about Anita, mm-hmm. but it's actually about Mick, I think. Or and, some amalgam of or those some, two Or some synthesis of the two. Yeah. The same thing is true of How Can I Stop. It's, a, it's equally as about Patty as it is about his relationship with Mick. Mm-hmm. And Don Watts will tell you the reason why the symbol decay and everything is so important is because Don Watts actually believed that that was going to be the last thing they ever recorded. Hmm. Because he, bo- he had been through the fight on Voodoo Lounge. And he also thought in that, after that fight that they would, there wouldn't be a Voodoo Lounge, that it would never come out and, and that would be the end of the Stones. He didn't believe that they would ever, that they would ever make another record after British Babylon because of the turmoil. Mm-hmm. And so here we are in 2017 where they're, they've just announced that they are doing another record mm-hmm. and they've already done the, after Babylon, they did uh, four new licks. Yeah. They did uh, a couple more songs later for Gur, and they did uh, a covers record just last year. An ABB, or like a bigger bang. Like, you know, the, you can't stop the stones. The yeah. stones stop you. But like I said, you know, we're further along, so much further ahead in time now than, 20 years on, we finally have perspective on this record for what it actually was in the canon, which is actually, you know, Don Moss in a certain sense was correct. I don't think they are going to make a record like this ever again. Like this is the most ambitious they ever get. And no, and the same thing applies to the tour and almost everything surrounding. If if you actually, the so I mentioned the No Security Tour. The No Security Tour was, was, re, was the British to Babylon tour rebranded because Mick found out that, they were going to get hit with a huge amount of taxes. So they said, okay, the Bridge of Babylon is folded up. We're going to wait till the start of the next tax season to start this new thing. But if you, if you combine those two together, that's probably the longest running tour in rock history. Right. It's from 97, 97 through 99 to, to the, to summer of 99. Yeah. And Mick Jagger jokes about this, that like he would see some artist, I think it was Lenny Kravitz. Like you run into Lenny Kravitz early on in the tour and then see him later at a party and be like, oh, you know that tour that you saw me on? I'm still doing it. Yeah. And so the only thing that even comes close is the current uh, 50 and counting, zip code, 14 For, yeah. on fire tour. Ole, that, ole, 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 ole. That they've been on. And now no since, filter. Since 2012. Yeah. You know, and it's five years and running. It's less dates though. Yeah. It's, it's significantly less dates. It's not so all, much a tour as a series of engagements. All told... The Babylon tour was something like 200 dates. Mm-hmm. Which is insane, thinking it about it now. Utterly insane. And they had three copies of the stage. I think we went over that earlier. Yeah, but yeah. even the no security shows, which were comparatively smaller production-wise, it only prefigured what they would do later with the Licks tour and the Bigger Bang tour, which was not only travel three different stages, but three different size of productions. In every town, they would maybe play three different size venues on the Licks tour. Yeah, and we should talk more about this because the Bridges to Babylon tour is also very historically important because it's the first kind of online uh, poll. Sure. For they did it for every one of the dates. I remember going onto their website and voting on them. Yeah. That you could... And they would show this on the screen on, on stage at the show. If you look at the special from St. Louis, they, they show the website, yeah, scrolling down. Uh, through the vote tally until you get to the top. Whereas today, they'd just be like, oh yeah, you can vote, but we're going to pick the one we want to play anyhow. Well, I still think that I still think that it's a little contrived because obviously they had Josh Redman for the- Waiting on a friend. Yeah, and, and 
it's too bad that no security is out of print because that version of Waiting on a Friend with Josh Redman is worth the price of admission alone. I agree. It's fantastic. It's almost, I mean, I love Sonny Rollins and, and the original, like I'm not, I'm not going to trash the original for a second. It's the first song I ever learned how to play. Like I love it. I love it so much. But the Josh Redman live version is like, it's the same as Lisa doing Gimme Shelter. You think you've heard like the pinnacle of this and that there's only this one way to do it. And then you see like Lisa Fisher has reinvented the part in Gimme Shelter mm-hmm. several times over. Yeah. And I think of her more than I think of Mary Clayton. And that's not disrespect. It's the difference between like a one performance that's captured in the moment versus having to Inhabited. bring something. Yeah. Having to live with that on the road. For twenty years, and even even um, even Lisa's first time in that feature, because she was on the Steel Wheels tour, but she didn't do that part in Gimme Shelter. Correct. When yeah. you hear her do it on the stripped outtakes version, mm-hmm. and realize that that's like you know a year into her working that part out, mm-hmm. astounding. Yeah, Just, she has such control. There, I'm not really a singer, right? <laughs> And there are a lot of people like this, you know. Um, you know, obviously there's Mick and there's Tom Waits and there's there's people who aren't, they're not trying to dazzle you with technique. They're storytellers. Even somebody like Bowie, I would say, is that. Like, Bowie is not, I don't care about his technique. What cares about what I care about is his sincerity. That's This goes double for Keith, too, which is why these two songs are so perfect. It's, you know, the way he puts across the lyric rather than, like, his melodic range yeah, or his intonation that it, you're listening to. It's much more like acting. Yeah. Whereas, whereas what Lisa does, like Lisa Fisher is a singer with a capital S. Like there is no, the only thing that, and, and if you haven't seen the 20 foot from what's it, <laughs> then, then do check it out. 20 feet from stardom, because also she is a, uh, she seems like a very centered and decent human being. And the evidence, my evidence for that is that she didn't want to be famous. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, she tried. Like yeah. many of us had, but I think that she realized the whole thing in making her second record was, I don't want, I don't really want to do this. Mm-hmm. And there's no shame in having been a part of some, an organization like the Rolling Stones for 30 years. Yeah. And uh, now being at the point where she's at now, where she has enough credibility and people respect her enough from seeing that documentary that she's able to actually go on the road as a solo artist once more, having spent that long basically either doing studio work or working with the stones only because my feeling is that Lisa Fisher in some alternate reality could have been Mariah Carey right and mm, look what happened to her uh and I'm not trying to be flippant or mean I'm just saying it's hard it's unbelievably hard to maintain uh, like Mariah Carey did something that no other artist in the history of time has done and having a number one single in every year of a decade Mm -hmm. like those are those records that she did are the nineties. Yeah. You know, there's no doubt about that, but clearly the stress is, you know, the, the, that's not how, like, that's not really a good life. You know, Bieber just quit touring. Like it's very, very difficult to maintain that. I think that if the stones hadn't actually come into it as young men, like if they hadn't been doing this since they were 19, mm-hmm. I don't know how they would do it. The only, they just don't know anything else. Yeah. And which is, you know, comes back to how can I stop? Yeah. Once you start, how can you stop? It, that's another thing too, is that I actually started to think that there are deliberate self-references, right? How can I stop and start me up are actually kind of saying the same thing. Hmm. It's just that one is more, you know, sexual. Yeah. And one is more emotional. 
And so it's the same thing. Like Soul Survivor has the same chords as Brown Sugar. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that's an accident. I actually think because because it, because at the end of the day, they would have had to know. They they wrote those songs. They would have known, and they would have had to have decided. Well, maybe they didn't talk about it, but they would have had to decided to leave it in the same way that Jumping Jack Flash and Satisfaction are very similar. Mm-hmm. And so obviously, like they're inhabiting the same space, and there's a reason. And I start to believe that it's actually because those are deliberate touchstones to tell you we are in the same psychological space. Yeah. So musically, there's a thread here which leads you back through the, you know, all the way back to the beginning of this phase of their career, starting with Ron joining the band. So with the the dawn of that era of the Stones, you have all these records that, you know, people have criticized for being too samey or too much like, you know, self-parody. But in fact, there's been kind of reaching for a different way of approaching that stuff every time they go out. And, and I, I find I find that criticism to be really weird because the mixes on some girls are probably the least dense out of their entire career. There's no percussion overdubs. Or I mean there's a little bit. Yeah. Right? There's a tiny bit of like hand clap and shaker and tambo here and there. But there's none of the Rocky Dijon and the, you know, you can't always get what you, I always find it very, very funny that people always point to like Beggar's Banquet to, to Exile on Main Street as these like stripped down, paired to the bone. Okay, like some of, like Parachute Woman is, but not Sympathy for the Devil. Even something like Jumping Jack Flash has layers and layers and layers of overdubs. And that's why it sounds so good. You know, the, there are tight ones. Prodigal Son is two guitars, a singer. And drum, like kit, that's, drum kit that practice drum kit yeah. and that's it and 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 that's probably one of the smallest mixes aside from like country honk maybe mm-hmm. i don't know even country honk like the the car and all that stuff is a production overdub it's not it's made to trick you into thinking it's live but it's, it's live, not yeah but it's not so again some girls was recorded more live than anything from the late 60s mm-hmm. you know most of what you're hearing was tracked all at once they weren't even wearing headphones yeah like it was, was off monitors Mick on the ground singing yeah. through a pa yeah i don't know how you can criticize some girls as being this kind of bloated overproduced thing it's just not you could say that about undercover i still think undercover is a, a great record with a few missteps but, but we can save all the, the nitty-gritty for later episodes when we go back to do all these albums. But I think that the main thing that ties them to Bridges to Babylon and why it's such an important pivot point for the band's career is that the production techniques really did mature to the point where they literally had an unlimited canvas at this point. Yeah, so... And this is what they did with it. The reason why Undercover is relevant here is because I do feel that there's a pretty pronounced difference between the way... That now it's the same studio. It's Pathway Marconi. It's mm-hmm. the same as it's the same as um, some girls and some girls and emotional from, rescue. Yeah. So some of some of emotional rescue is electric lady, but I, and from NASA, the compass point in the Bahamas, I think too. Yes, the thing about Undercover is that Undercover is the first one that they actually did to a click track. It's the first one that they did in anything resembling a modern production workflow. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, there's a few. They started to add a lot of these sequenced elements and the drum machines and stuff like that. And like when something like when there's something like too much blood, which is like fully 
you know, it's supposed to be thriller. I didn't realize that for a long time, but too much blood is a response to thriller. And that works for me entirely because it's one consistent thing. Whereas something like those um, fake rototoms in the Simmons tie drums. you up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like I hate it and I want it to go away, but you can clearly hear what's the band and what was the overdub added, yeah. added later. The reason, and I said this at the beginning, I'm going to say it again. The reason why Bridges to Babylon works so much better from a production standpoint is because of that room, the Focusrite console, and the uh, the advances in the digital technology to get it to the point where everything could be blended to sound together. Because it's almost it's almost impossible impossible sonically to tell what's an overdub and what's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can reason it out that the, that the vocals were probably overdubbed. Very few of the vocals, I bet, were live. And, you know, you can hear because certain things have, certain things have, um, like, ghost notes or... or, or Leakage or, from another yeah, take. Yeah, you or can hear instrument. some bleed here and there. You can hear, you can hear Woody cackle yeah. in How Can I Stop? And yeah. I'm sure was left there on purpose. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's very, it's very difficult to tell what's what on that because it has this cohesive, it's like the low end is there, but it's still kind of like pillowy and soft. The, the drums are crisp and have a lot of crack to them, but they're not woody. These are all, you know, industry approved terms for describing (laughs) sound, but there's, there's a great balance between the air and the presence. Yeah. And like Voodoo Lounge is a little, Voodoo Lounge is also great, but it's a little more woody. Mm-hmm. That's a Neve console. That's uh, Windmill Lane, where U2 does their records. Very, very good sounding record, of yeah. course. But it's a little darker, a little woodier. A little, and I don't mean it has more run wood. I mean, it, like it has a kind of um, boxiness. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's still good. Some people do mixes that are really thumpy and lumpy, and some people do ones that are really crisp and, and lush. And Bridges of Babylon is very much the, the second. And I think that this song, I think even though it is kind of elliptical and slow and kind of impenetrable to the average listener, it, it draws you in. And, you know, by the time you get to that Wayne Shorter sax solo at the end, you're in a, you know, a whole new realm. That's the other one too, is that this is overtly, um, I also feel, I feel that All About You is, again, I'm going to keep comparing them because they're, Keith has got the last word on every Rolling Stones record since Emotional Rescue. Or no. Uh, Exception of Undercover. and Yeah. That's about pretty much 100% of the time he gets the last song. He, right? Yeah, he's, he's, he's definitely getting the last word here. Uh, and so uh, he, he really likes Hoagie Carmichael. In fact, when Hoagie Carmichael had heard that he, he did a version of The Near, Nearness of You, 80-year-old Hoagie Carmichael calls Keith up and says, I got some other songs you might like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just always trying to hawk. Uh, product That's there. That's probably why George Harrison recorded so many of his things in the 80s. Somebody in the Atlantic Records office like get, got in touch with Hoagie Carmichael and was like, hey, this Beatle guy is going to record a bunch of your songs. And he's like, great, here's yeah. 10 more. Yeah, no. And so so How Can I Stop is definitely, I think, Keith's most successful attempt at this style. You know, you've got, you've got Charlie Watts there in full jazz form. Mm-hmm. Got Wayne Shorter. Yeah. Who plays? Does Daryl play bass on that? No, it's Jeff Sarley again. Sarley I think again. doing the stand up again. That that's what I thought. Chuck Lavelle has a lot of jazz in him. Like this but I think is, Blondie's the one playing the piano on this take, or that's what he's credited. Actually, for. that makes sense. Uh, Blondie there. So this is, you know, there is this made up tension 
between jazz and rock. Mm-hmm. Jazz guys think rock guys are cavemen. Rock guys think jack, jazz guys are ivory tower intellectuals who have no idea what the real world is. I'm going to solve this for both of you. Rock and jazz are the same thing. They are absolutely 100% the same thing. There is the, the influence of jazz is just so big that it's almost impossible to look back and see where this came from. Right. But all rhythm sections in popular music are jazz rhythm sections. All of them. There is no getting to rock and roll without the concept of swing bands basically. and improvisationally yeah. based music. Yeah. It was a necessary step. There's no reason to fight. Um, there's plenty of rock musicians who are very well versed in jazz and really understand it. What Keith is into is the more Sarah Vaughn, Dinah Washington, mm-hmm. Billy Holiday. The torch ballad kind of side. Yeah. He's not in, and he, there is a hard bob element to Keith Richards for sure. But, um, and Mingus, he did that Mingus, oh Lord, don't let them drop that atomic bomb on mm-hmm. me thing, which only, you can watch this documentary on YouTube from Japan, because Japan clearly ate it up. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very difficult for me to understand why people choose to fight about that. Mm-hmm. Listen to Chuck Berry. Yeah. Chuck Berry wanted to be, uh, you know, they called it, it was, uh, he wanted to be Nat King Cole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was some, the, there's definitely some muddy and there's definitely some, there's like the more guttural blues stuff in there, but the rhythm section is pure jazz. So yeah. what Keith is doing here is saying, hey, look at the beginnings of this. Look at where this came from. And I think that How Can I Stop is definitely the one that works the most for me. The reason I don't really like losing my touch. The reason why I don't really like losing my touch a great deal is because I think he's repeating himself. It's one of the only times that I really feel he's repeating himself. But what I think that what I think that what is going on there is that he felt that how can I stop was so successful that they would try to do something like that mm-hmm. again. If you're a rock guy, don't fight with jazz people. Listen to Chuck Berry and know that all all those guys who played on the rock sessions in the fifties went and did jazz gigs at night. Yeah. Or would turn around and do session stuff. Like Earl Palmer. Earl Palmer is like New Orleans. I can't believe it took me this long to get to New Orleans. There's no session drummer in the world that doesn't have some New Orleans about him. Right. Like and New Orleans Where do you think rudiments like all the military influence and the, you know, the swampy kind of like R and B influence, it's all coming out of those like those dance bands in New Orleans on, you know, yeah, how a march turns yeah. into a shuffle. Like, yeah, they're, they're, it just to like learn, learn your history and like go back there. Like, that's what Keith is saying. It's like, go, go look at the roots of rock and roll and see how far. Cause it's, it's interesting to see that there's stuff like Gunface and Anybody See My Baby on the same record as something like How Can I Stop? Because it's like up to the minute and then, you know, the deep and murky past. And, that, and there's even that weird primordial kind of, uh, tuned percussion at the end, which I don't know who's playing I that or what that is. It's but a thumb piano, I think. It almost sounds like gamelan, like Indonesian gamelan. So uh, that makes me think that it might have been a Keltner, like he might have had a couple of those weird gongs. Right. We should also talk a little bit more about the Charlie Watts Jim Keltner project. If, yeah. If we, we may have to save it for a whole other podcast because I've never even listened to it. Oh, so, yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. So we'll do that. Get ready. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed listening to us ramble on about this record ad nauseum. So, uh, if you liked it, uh, get in touch with us. Yeah, and we're going to do more of these. Uh, we have a lot more to say about 
weird, obscure things about the world's most popular band that somehow people don't know about. And, you know, if you uh, enjoy what the kids are doing these days, why not look up uh, Rolling Stones posting on Facebook and uh, join the lively discussion there? Definitely look up <laughs> Rolling Stones posting and David Bowie star posting. All of them. Submarine posting. This is great. It's a brand new perspective on that Synergy. whole generation yeah. of music. <laughs> Um, so if you thought that Gen, Gen, uh, whatever versus millennials was bad before, wait till you see the do woo 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 memes, meme school <laughs> coming 2018. Uh, on that note, we'll wrap it up, uh, for under the radar, a Rolling Stones podcast about the deep cuts and hot cookies. I've been, uh, Tim Lindsay and I'm Christian Bonner and I continue to be, and, uh, hopefully we'll see you soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks once again for checking out Under the Radar, a Rolling Stones podcast about deep cuts and hot cookies. If you'd like to get in touch with either Christian or myself, you can email rollingstonespodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about this podcast. Until the next time, we say goodbye. Goodbye.